I think without government funding, it would have been hard, if not impossible, to start Phoenix Tailings in its entirety. The reason being is the NSF funding, the NSF i funding that we were able to receive. That helped us scope an understanding of the problem. And that was the thing that we used to rally together, not just the investors, but also, you know, Michelle, Tomas, Anthony, and the early employees of Phoenix Sailings who put their time and resources themselves on the line. It was needed to understand that scope of that problem, the scope of the solution to do that, to convince everyone that this was a real thing. So I don't think we would have had a company, to be honest with you, or if we did, it would have looked a lot different. This is Undiluted, the show about the amazing founders and companies who've used government research and development grants, contracts and sales to build their products, grow their companies and keep their equity. We are Katie Person and Gene Kesselman from MIT Mission Innovation X and Jeff Orism from FedScout. And on today's show, we learn how a team of engineers are turning mining waste into rare earth metals with help from Techstars, Venture Capital, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Energy, and the Department of Defense. So Phoenix Tailings was uh, pretty bit different than most other deep tech companies. We weren't founded with a lot of resources out of a lab at MIT or Harvard or any of these places, really. In fact, we actually saw a problem in the world. Let's get together the smartest people on the planet, the most driven people, the most passionate people, the people that want to change the world. Let's get them together and solve this problem. And it started off, I met Tomas Villalone, Dr. Tomas, who has an undergrad degree at MIT, PhD at BU in molten salt electrolysis. Super smart guy, by the way. We met him at a Bible study about four years ago or so. And as one does late at night at a Bible study, we started talking about all the biggest challenges in the world. And one of those challenges was actually how we create metal today. The fact is there's 173 billion metric tons of waste produced in the metals and mining industry every single year with over 7% of the world's carbon emissions being produced. And all of this stuff is just stored in our, all this waste material is just stored in these land, massive landfills all over the world. And it's destroying environments, it's destroying the ecosystems, it's leaching poison into these groundwaters. It's a blight on our society as a whole. And not only that, but every war in history has ever been fought over access to natural resources. And we're just throwing this stuff away. So Tomas and I got started talking about this whole thing. He said, look, there's got to be a better way. You see some small, some people doing some small things here and there, whether it's pulling some platinum or pulling some gold out of old tailings or old waste products, but no one doing a holistic picture where we use the entire geology, the entire uh, value of the ore that we're mining. And Tomas and I said, look, let's give this a whirl. So uh, he brought in Michelle Chow, who's with me here today. I brought in Anthony Baladin, who came from South Africa, who had seen a lot of the challenges of tailings or that waste product that we see in mining, because South Africa is a country that's riddled with this challenge. And together, the four of us built the first prototype in the backyard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, processing a little bit of what's called bauxite residue, which is a byproduct of producing alumina, which is a precursor to the aluminum that's used in MacBooks and cell phones and cars and things. Uh, we pulled out a little bit of iron at the time and a little bit of rare earth concentrate. Uh, definitely come a long way since then. We're, we're no longer in a backyard, which we're pretty pumped about. And you know, we've raised about uh, 12 million bucks total today, a fair bit of non-diluted funding in that, which is really helpful uh, along the way to help us get to that point. We have a 3,500 square foot lab in Woburn, Massachusetts, processing bauxite residue, iron ore tailings, copper tailings, nickel tailings, 
platinum tailings, all these different waste products from the mining processes. And we work with some of the largest mines in the world to be able to scale up our technology to process the entire value of that ore source so that we leave nothing behind. Changing mining from being a net negative industry where it destroys the environment to being an industry where we're actually cleaning up the world to get these metals that we need. So today we really focus on producing the iron and the rare earth metals. And I say that very specifically. We're the only companies in the world outside of China that can actually produce rare earth metals themselves. We don't produce concentrate, which is companies like MP Materials out in California do, where it's just the base product mine, uh, mine there or the oxides. We actually can go all the way to do the concentration, separation and final metallization. And that's really what we're good at. That's our core competency that we've been focusing on very heavily. So you could have talked about anything at your Bible study with Tomas. Talk a little bit about your background and his as well, and why this was really important to you personally. Yeah, absolutely. Tomas grew up in San Antonio, Texas. His family is Mexican, and they, they're first generation Americans. And he grew up in a poor town there, but his family came from Mexico in a lot of the areas where mining waste has actually poisoned a lot of the groundwaters. And this is a problem that actually is very near and dear to him. The reason he went into material science in the first place was because he wanted to find a way to solve that problem because he had seen how massively it impacts impoverished countries, impoverished regions and areas where you don't have necessarily access to all the clean water that we do here in the U.S. And that was Tomas's reason. And it was very, very, very close to home for me. You know, I didn't grow up in, in that type of area. I grew up in Connecticut. But I actually would go visit my grandparents out in Arizona. My uncle was a miner in the gold mines out in Nevada. My grandfather is a jeweler, dentist originally, and then he became the jewelry. And anyway, he likes metal a lot, <laughs> but he would actually take me to the gold or to the copper mines. And at the time, I, I didn't really know what it was. I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world where you're going up this just absolutely enormous mountain of rock and you see this enormous lake of what was crystal clear water at the time is really bright blue. And now I found out that's a huge tailings pond, but I always remember very closely and I had seen that and followed it since then. I did my undergrad degree in physics and really focused in a lot of the challenge that you see in the world with that education and move forward. And Tomas and I clearly had an intersection and that was one of the biggest things that fell near and dear to our hearts. Michelle actually too, the, if I may, Michelle had a real good reason why she joined in addition to us. Michelle saw a lot of sustainability. Michelle, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I've always been interested in sustainability. I got my material science degree, not specifically uh, on metals and mining, but always around renewable energy sources. So I spent a lot of time doing research in solar energy. Post MIT, I'd worked at a uh, 3D printing company where it's focused on additive versus subtractive manufacturing, much less waste. And then as I was catching up with Tomas uh, about a few years ago, you mentioned you had met Nick. They started having these discussions and I learned more and more I learned about mining and how wasteful it was. The more uh, engaged I got, the more interested. I was incredible when I learned these stats, you know, 173 billion tons of waste generated every year, enough to cover California in a foot deep of sludge. That's that's incredible. It's, it's the 21st century. We should be able to do much better than that. And my, personally, I'm really passionate about hiking, climbing, just enjoying nature generally. So the fact that we're utilizing and taking up you know so much valuable land just to, to dump waste and poisoning groundwater, causing you know ecological damages when these dams do fail. This, this is terrible. We got to do something about this. And so when someone's like, hey, you want, you want to help out? I say, of course, sign me up. How can I help? I don't even think I would know where to begin to do a pilot for a project like this. And you just set it up in your backyard. Can you share like, how did that happen? 
Yeah, of course. So we got our hands on this little bit of bauxite residue, red mud. It, it literally does exactly what the name sounds like. It looks like red sludge. So we had a, a small sample and it was about three years ago in Tomas's backyard. Uh, we kind of just ground around supplies. We had a few thousand dollars, our own personal um, investment into the company. Well, not much of a company, but just four of us in the backyard. Uh, household supplies from Target, uh, mason jars, duct tape, a lot of duct tape. And we built our, what we call our first prototype reactor. It uh, wasn't the most beautiful thing in the world, but it got the job done. We were able to take that bauxite residue, just a small amount of it, maybe 10, 50, uh, 50 grams of it, process it, and separate out two key components, a small speck of our earth concentrate, and a little bit of electrolytic iron, pure iron. For me, that was a turning point where it went from four of us with an idea in the backyard to something that you know felt really real. We were actually able to take this real waste product and pull actual valuable items out of it. It wasn't much, it was a very small amount. We actually had to um, borrow scientific equipment to actually confirm what we'd made was actually metal, but it was, and it was really exciting. Quite you know, shortly afterwards, we are like, hey, let's do this for real, let's do this as a company. And that's where Phoenix Tailings was born. So bauxite residue in Cambridge, did you have to import that? Like, how did how did you get that where you needed it? Fortunately, uh, when it's a research sample, even it's a small amount, it's, uh, it's, it's acceptable to work with. Um, <laughs> it was a very small amount. For everyone's reference, I would not recommend building a, a chemical lab in your backyard. <laughs> there were challenges along the way. Thankfully, we quickly got a lab when it started becoming serious, safe from there. Discourage <laughs> folks who want to do chemical experiments in the backyard, unless it's very safe with the best people around. Yeah, we, you were convinced that we didn't need a lab for a little bit until you saw what we were doing and said, oh, yeah, I see why you, you guys are, need a fume hood here. <laughs> I walked through one cloud of hydrochloric acid fumes, and then we got a lab the next week. <laughs> so <laughs> It totally makes my stomach turn as a landlord in this area. <laughs> Curious. <laughs> but so from there to your space in Waltham, there must have been a few more steps in there. So what did that look like? Yeah, if I may, Michelle. So yeah, when we first started, we had that backyard experiments, looking up at the sky to see if it was going to rain that night so we could run the experiments, trying to take away on weekends. None of us had much social lives, I will be honest there. I don't think we do now, but... Uh, then especially we got our first lab space actually i think it was triple ring technologies was a biotech incubator in south end that had just launched and they were looking for people to join and i met the guy through a mutual connection he was like oh we'd love to have you here the rent is xyz and i was like okay we don't have that but we have a tenth of that well all right fine we had one bench at triple ring technologies i think for six months before we got backed by Techstars. Once Techstars backed us, we had a little bit more money uh, in the bank and we were able to, we raised uh, $387,000 on our, it was, we call it our pre-seed round or our friends and family round, whatever you want to call it there. But Techstars uh, led that round with a few other angels in the round there. And we got our first, what I would call true lab, where it was our own space, not just a bench in a shared area. And that was out in Woburn as well with Cummings Properties. And it was really great. I think it was, what, 500 square feet, Michelle? Is that correct? Yep. It was a small, but it was ours. It was small, but it was weeks. ours. That's exactly it Two weeks before everything shut down. So it was perfect timing as well. Perfect. And then, so once everything shut down, we really didn't know what to do. We were following all these CVDC guidelines, trying to figure out how to do everything. But thankfully, we know it was a small space, but we also didn't have a lot of people. <laughs> so five people, Anthony and I don't work in the lab. So we, we work from home and everyone else went in, but we had basically one little thing there. Then we raised our seed round led by accomplice. And that was 1.68 mil last summer. 
not this summer, but the summer before that. And we were able to take that funding, which we were very excited about to really help us scale and move into this 3,500 square foot lab here in Woburn, where we have now. And that lab has really been really helpful. It's, it's got all, all the different things that we need, all the different toys and all the bells and whistles, but it was really where we're starting to expand and build our prototypes that before that really was just demonstrable MVP type demonstrable concepts. Now we're really expanding. We can actually produce metal, small scales, of course, bear in mind, but we have shipped metals to customers. We have shipped materials. We are building full infrastructure plans to actually build up on site at mines. And we just raised our series A funding, which was uh, led by Olive Tree Capital. And that really helped us to uh, massively scale a lot of the stuff we're implementing now. And we're currently in the process to build the largest rare earth metal production facility in North America, which is pretty exciting. So Michelle is leading the charge there to identify the right real estate. We would love to do that in Massachusetts. We're still looking for the exact physical location because real estate these days is pretty chaotic, but we're pretty excited about that. And it was due to a lot of the funding that we have, as well as the governmental funding from RPE, Department of Energy, Office of Sciences, and uh, DOD AFWorks program, as well as NSF. They're really starting to be able to expand that and provide a domestic supply of those rare earth metals here, which is pretty exciting. Could you give a little bit of a timeline for how each of these government programs slotted into this larger story and and the and how they were mirroring the the venture rounds? Yeah, absolutely. So the first one I'll say was actually the NSF I-Corps funding, and we actually got that through a local node. At UConn was the first one, and I will say, you know, people people grill I think NSF I-Corps program a lot because it's very tough. That was the most impactful thing we have ever done to this date at Phoenix Dynamics. Uh, it was the first bit where they forced us to really understand what the customer needs. And for those of you, if you're not familiar with I-Corps program, it's run by the National Science Foundation and usually used with, you know, in conjunction with various universities to push customer discovery and give you a framework to understand exactly what your customer needs. Go out and talk to people that is not in your lab. Because it was left to us and the researchers that we have, right? We would have just come up with an idea and then put it out in the market and hoped it worked. But they really forced us to push on that and understand that. So that was the first funding we got. Uh, I think it was two, $3,000 through the Yukon uh, I-Corps program was the first run through. We actually won the Yukon's new innovation competition that they have run by the Wolf family, which was amazing. Uh, that was $20,000 in non-dilutive funding. That actually funded our first prototype, which was building out rare, oh, sorry, the iron production. Uh, we, we were, it funded our first prototype to build out iron nanoparticles and electrolytic iron production, which was pretty cool. So that was pretty awesome. All non-dilutive, 100%. So that was really helpful. And then from there, we actually went through the MIT's ICOR program as well, focused on the rare earth supply a little bit more, as well as understanding the aluminum refineries and the mines about what they produce. Because we originally thought we were going to sell to them, shifted that a fair bit since that uh, especially once we went through the $35,000 program that was funding from later that year, which was with NSF National. That was really powerful. All of this was before Techstars, so that was in 2019. That really shaped what we would eventually build as the business of Phoenix Tailings. It was all of that information, the funding from National Science Foundation that allowed us to fly out to Malaysia, Hungary, Vancouver, uh, all over the U.S. and pretty much everywhere in between that really shaped that, that business model. Then once we got back by Techstars, we had been pushing for the NSF SBIR phase one for, in our case was electrolytic iron production from bauxite residue. 
And we were awarded that uh, later in the spring, which actually coincided very nicely with our financing round from Accomplice. That NSF funding really showed validation of the technology in Accomplice's mind, which really pushed that. And I don't think we would have been able to close the round, at least not on the same valuation, without that NSF funding. And that funding was helpful in itself. It did fund a lot of our research, but it really was that stamp of approval that Accomplice needed to pull the trigger on the investment, which was pretty huge. So fast forward, that was in 2020, the summer of 2020. Fast forward that we made a lot of progress on the technology, a lot of progress on the business. And then March 2021, we were awarded the ARPA-E funding, which was $500,000 of non-diluted funding to produce rare earth metals, both the separation and the metallization stages of it, which was pretty freaking cool. And that was the big trigger that, that pushed Nick Elievitz, our lead at Olive Tree Capital, to say, hey, rare earths are a big thing. This is huge, right? So Nick is an amazing investor. He's fantastic, very knowledgeable. But I think the RPE funding really helped validate a lot for him. Following that, we actually quickly got the DOE Office of Sciences funding that validated the metallization a bit further as well on our approach there, which was very, very helpful. And again, pretty much around that same month, we also got the AFWorks SBIR phase one, which was only $50,000 or so, but really showed that, hey, the DOD, not just the DOE, have an interest in these metals. And so that really helped us close the rounds. And we've been focusing very heavily on expanding our presence with the with both state governments, as well as federal governments and the various different agencies to make sure that we're building this at the best capital efficient manner. Because at the end of the day, when you're making metal, it's very costly. It's a very costly challenge. It's extremely hard to build a business like this purely on venture funding. And it's that non-dilutive funding that really allows you to do this in an economical way. That gives the best possible return for the investors, uh, the best possible return for the founders, and the best possible return for all the employees involved with it. So it makes it worth everyone's while, which really, I think, helps the United States as a whole. As a resource-constrained, small founding team, how were you measuring the, you know, the opportunity cost of each of these options? Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good question, Jeff. So the high-level answer is it's really tough. I remember when we first started, we were putting a lot of effort there for a couple of reasons. One was for the money, right? We needed the money to do whatever different tasks we needed, the R&D and things like this. And yes, we thought that would be worth our time to do so. But also, it's a really valuable approach when at that time, early on, to go through the check boxes of what is your customer uh, discovery process? What does this actually look like? What does it mean to say this uh, technology can be commercialized? And approaching the right different grants that are in line with your strategic path is very critical. I will say it does take a lot of time. From an actual grant writing perspective, it's probably 40 to 80 hours to write any various in-depth grant of any sort. When you need a few people looking at it, I will say the state of Massachusetts has been very helpful for us because they have uh, Dan Lilly who reviews all of our grants. And he's amazing. He's so helpful. He catches all of our mistakes that we make frequently. But there, there's, it is challenging on a, for, for a bandwidth to write it up. But it is very helpful for you to think through strategically what does this core piece of innovation actually mean for our business? What does it actually entail? All of those grants were in line with our strategic uh, roadmap. And it just took us a little bit of effort to look ahead seven to 12 months to be able to understand what that was. And then we apply for the grants ahead of time. I think where people oftentimes run into problems is they think grants are just funding and it's just a way to keep the lights on, which I think is actually a really bad approach. 
and ultimately ends up in you wasting time and resources to get useless things. I can speak to a couple of companies, namely Infinium. Uh, Craig, the former CEO, is an is incredible mentor of ours, a really great guy, and their whole company is amazing. But they had a tough time because they, uh, they were making rare earth metals before they went bankrupt. But they approached a bunch of these different grants that weren't really in their realm of expertise. They just had some of the skill sets they could apply for it. And then they got them and then they pursued them. But it wasn't in line with their strategic roadmap. And I think if by mapping that road, by mapping their grant strategy to their roadmap, they would have been much more successful than it ended up happening. So I would say that's the, the biggest aspect there. What you just said basically sums up my dual use ventures IAP course, which at MIT is a short January term, being really strategic with both commercial funding and opportunities, as well as federal and government funding and opportunities and really making sure that they're complementing each other. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the most important thing I think of any company early stage. One other thing I'd, I'd love to extract is, you know, obviously each of these programs that you were a part of had a financial benefit, whether it was a few thousand or a few million dollars of, of money to do research and to build your product. But putting aside the cash, what can you, can you help our, our audience understand the benefits you were getting from each program? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the NSF one, I, I would say that's really like the NSF i program. Yeah, I had money with it, but it was really just covering travel. So unless you're looking to get your travel funded for, for fun, the, the money itself was not super powerful. The real power behind it was the structure and the learnings that occurred. Um, the really the focus on understanding how to do that customer discovery process and how to build a commercialization plan was oh so powerful. I would highly recommend that for any young entrepreneur, any other scientist, anyone looking to build a company or have a cool idea, even if you don't go through the program itself, just looking online at the specific processes that Steve Blank built, unreal, so helpful. I recommend it for every single person asking me about how to build a company, what the first step would be. Um, the NSF SBIR program had an initial i program, which Michelle took part of, uh, and Michelle can speak more to the extent of how they were helpful as well there. Michelle, do you want to chime in? Yeah, of course. I found that to Nick's point with the customer discovery, it really helped us understand that what we're building is not just a technology. We're not just trying to solve a problem, but purely that these, these problems we're looking at affect people and everyone has motivations in, in terms of what they care about. And there's different decisions, decision makers, influencers, buyers, and there's no ecosystem to understand. And so that process of doing customer discovery really enabled, you know, just for myself and also for Tomas, uh, to kind of see outside of the little technical bubble we have grown up with within MIT. And I think that enabled us to really understand Phoenix Tailings as, as a business. And that, I think, really helped us go from in that initial, hey, we're just building a really cool technology that could solve this problem to, you know, this is actually a full solution platform that we're designing to really solve the essence of the, the, the challenge, which is that we, there just hasn't been an economic solution put together to really tackle this tailings waste problem. And it's not just a technology problem, it's really a, a business problem. And we have to tackle it, you know, both aspects together. That was a major learning from that NSF i program. And beyond the, the i programs and the NSF funding, I think a lot of the grants, when you do them strategically, uh, approach with your actual strategic plan, what it really gives you is milestones to hit. Any of you that have started building a company, I think the one is biggest thing that everyone always sees is the lack of uh, accountability. When no one's hounding you to get up in the morning or checking your clock to see if you're in at 9 a.m. every day, it's really hard a lot of times to make sure you're still staying on the right path and moving forward. And I, th I do think that's one of the big values that uh, RPE in particular brings, that for us at least, is because we have to report out, we have to show that we're doing this and we're moving towards this milestone. 
it keeps you accountable to achieving that milestone before pivoting off to something else when the new shiny thing that comes up, which is very powerful for an early stage startup. You said that getting validation that DOD would be a customer was really important to you. And I'm just curious if you can differentiate the how the investors and how you thought about the DOE funding streams from the DOD funding streams. Great question, Jeff. And so what I would clarify is that from an investor standpoint, they wanted to see that this was a strategic initiative, not just in one agency, but it spanned beyond other agencies. So it could have been in a few other different ones. The DOD just happens to be, I think, the largest from a funding standpoint. Uh, so that, that was a big initiative around it is that this does have applications. We did end up having a few national security focused investors who really cared about it, but that strategic interest from not just DOE showed that, hey, other parts of the government care about this. And this is a big issue for the United States as a whole, not just one, one agency or not just one group within one agency. So that was really the value add that they can scale beyond just the one entity. I'm curious about DOD, how they would be a customer and then how that pairs with your commercial practice. That's a great question, JD. So we don't see DOD as a direct customer yet. There are some research groups within the DOD that we have targeted and that we are engaged with early on, but DOD doesn't really buy metal, which is what we produce. They are a very big influencer in the uh, supply chain. Lockheed Martin uh, and Lockheed Martin subcontractors are massive buyers of metal. So that's where it comes into play. And it's really saying DOD cares about having US-based rare earth metals in their F-35, for example, which has 900 pounds of rare earth metals held within it. If those are made in China and we go to war with China, it's going to be really hard to make new F-35s. Having that supply chain and DOD recognizing that they need that supply chain is really the value add. But they're more of an influencer than they are a buyer, with the exception, of course, being the Defense Logistics Agency. And so how does that pair with your commercial market? That's a. It sounds like it's probably a very different business model. No, it's the same business model overall. We sell metal. That's really what we do, right? This is the difference between us and most deep tech country companies. Most deep tech companies really are building technology that they can license to bigger players who then implement that technology. We are different and our funding path shows that. Uh, we've actually gotten all of our investors to, to go for the same thing and they actually want to move forward on that. We plan to build and operate these sites. It's a fair bit different. So our sales are the metal sales. So when DOD comes in, obviously that's not short term. DOD is a much longer sales cycle when you're talking in metals and as well as like Lockheed Martin, uh, uh, General Dynamics, any of those big players, they're going to take a while. But it's important to build the relationships now so that in two, three years, when we have the capabilities to actually sell to them at large, massive quantities, we're able to do that. It's a little bit more about planning ahead for those groups. We target, of course, much smaller groups like the magnet companies here in the U.S. That's really where we look to, to, to sell our metals initially, as well as a few different other entities that are at smaller scales. But with this new facility that we're going to get online, uh, we're starting the building process now, or the design process to build. We will be able to get uh, over one to three metric tons a month of rare earth metals produced, which is, again, the largest in North America. So we'll be able to supply not just the smaller companies, but also the bigger players and be a significant supplier of rare earth metals for automotive, defense, the new technologies and 5G and various different other applications. I guess kind of a twofold question. Can you, what are rare earths why, and why do we care about them and why aren't we making them in the US? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I can give a high level overview on this and Michelle is the queen of the technology. So I'll let her take that away. I won't chime in too much there. 
But so rare earths are the seven or well, a group of 16 metals plus scandium that are interesting different materials. They're used in all these different type of high technology applications. They're very unique with specifically their magnetic properties. That's a really big one. So the neodymium iron boron magnet is a rare earth magnet. And it's the main magnet that and samarium cobalt, which is also a rare earth magnet is those are main magnets that are needed for any type of electric vehicles, any type of power generation beyond solar. So think of wind turbines, hydroelectric, any of this needs high power magnets to be able to function. If you think about how you actually create energy, it's pretty much just whipping a, uh, whipping a magnet around a conductor that allows you to push forward power, right? The pow more powerful your magnet is, the better you can do that. So in order for us as a society to hit our 2030 targets, on say wind generation or renewable power in any capacity or electric vehicles, we have to massively increase our supply of these rare earth metals because historically they haven't really been needed for that much application process. They're used in a lot of different things, but it's pretty small. They are used in missile guidance systems, for example, but again, very small amounts of them at a time. But now as a society, we are actually pivoting to using from a small amounts using these massive amounts of material. So that's a real big shift that the society is going to do. These materials themselves, they're not mined like normal metal. Uh, the way we think about mining, if you're a layman having not really done too much with it, you probably just think of the prospectors out West where they dug up these various different nuggets out of the ground and melt that down. Now you have gold, right? It's not really how mining works today, right? The famous quote from one of my uh, personal uh, heroes, if you will, in the mining sector is uh, Robert Friedland. And he always says, rare earths are neither rare, nor are they earths, which is a very, very astute statement. Rare earths are found in vast majority of different ground, and they're not themselves a earth in the sense of a rock that you're digging up. That's really not where the technology needs to be. It's not digging up more rare earth ore. And you'll hear all the time people on the news saying, oh yeah, rare earths are everywhere. That is correct. By default, that is absolutely correct. The problem with rare earths comes in the processing. And China today controls 97% of the supply of the rare earth metals because they own that processing. Taking rare earth ore, turning it into a concentrate, which is a high amount of those rare earth oxides all mixed together, converting that to the individual rare earth oxides like neodymium oxide, presidymium oxide, or dysprosium oxide. And then actually taking those oxides, which are like a powder, and turning that into the final metals and metal alloys that you need to make magnets with, that is the hard part. And they use a lot of really hazardous stuff in that process that here in the US or in developed countries, it's just not economic to do because we can't poison our people every couple of years. It's not okay here. Uh, and it shouldn't be there, but they do it and they do it economically in their way. And they're able to push it because the Chinese Communist Party has a specific strategic objective around producing these materials. So here in the US, we need to find a way to beat the Chinese in that specific area, to beat that culture, to beat that economy without poisoning people, without uh, destroying environments, and without reducing regulations on these type of things. And the best way to do that is to do what America is really best in the world at, which is build great technology, which is what here we're doing here at Phoenix Tailings. And thankfully what uh, the US government has supported in a lot of ways and what we have a lot of folks helping us to do. So with that, Michelle, do you want to talk about the technology? Yeah. So 
the the way to think about our technology and how we're processing material, making those rare earth metals is really in three stages. So that very first stage of where we're taking the mined material, the tailings, to processing that and pulling out concentrate. In that concentration stage, we utilize a process called hydrometallurgy. That's really just a water-based chemistry system. It's just a fancy word to say that. Where we separate all of the different mineral compounds that are mixed together in those tailings. So that's that first stage process. It's also done you know, conventionally in the mining for rare earth processing itself. So you're taking rare earth ores. This is the same idea. You know, we're just adapting that, that technology for tailings, which are you know smaller particles and come from different sources and have a variety of compositions. So this is where we have to have the most flexible processing, but it's also very well known and not a lot of novel developments can be established here. The second stage process is kind of where our IP starts to come into play. Um, this is the separation stage where we're taking that concentrate and separating it into a number of different oxides. So the rare earths, there's 17 of them, they usually all come together. And it's the, the important part is being able to separate them into individual elements and then actually process them. So this stage is where some of our novel IP comes into play. And we use the process called soluble metallurgy, which is just another big word for saying um, separation technology is not using water-based uh, systems, so using solvents. And then the last stage, this is our, really where our core IP lies in, and when our trade secrets or patents are around, is electrochemistry. So we're taking these oxides that we've separated, and we're using electricity in just the right way to convert those into final metal products. So these are the neodymium, the, you know, the individual metals that end up going into magnets, so that magnet producers are util utilizing these materials to make those rare earth magnets that everyone's familiar with. So that is where you know our core competency is around this piece of technology. That's what Tomas and our whole engineering team has developed and worked on scaling a process that taking that oxide form and converting it to final metal product. And that's something that currently no one's really doing in the States. Is there anybody, whether it's in government or industry or anywhere else, that if they're listening, they should reach out to you? Uh, anyone at Tesla or General Motors, in particular, yeah, Musk, if he's, if he's open, if he, if he happens to be tuning in. But Tesla, General Motors, Ford, these folks are the folks that are shifting over to their electric fleets. They'll need more rare earths. And we want to talk to them to understand a little bit about what they need so that we can make sure that we can produce that for them in the future and make sure they have a reliable supply chain of these rare earth metals. That's really our target. In addition, anyone that has deep knowledge about how to navigate the various different government agencies, whether it's lobbyists or other folks engaged, we'd love to talk to them. That's a, a big ask from us. We definitely need help. We've spent the past six months learning the government and I still don't really understand how it works. So anyone with any insight would be very helpful. <laughs> Do you have any reflections on where you would be without the government money and the government programs? And number two, do you have any idea how much equity the government programs have saved you? That's a really good question, Jeff. High level, I think without government funding, it would have been hard, if not impossible, to start Phoenix Tailings in its entirety. The reason being is the NSF funding, the NSF i funding that we were able to receive. That helped us scope an understanding of the problem. And that was the thing that we used to rally together, not just the investors, but also, you know, Michelle, Tomas, Anthony, and the early employees of Phoenix Sailings who put their time and resources themselves on the line. It was needed to understand that scope of that problem, the scope of the solution to do that, to convince everyone that this was a real thing. So I don't think we would have had a company, to be honest with you, or if we did, it would have looked a lot different. I think that would be a huge difference than what it was today. Keep in mind, we were built very fundamentally different. Right? We didn't have a piece of core technology that we would look to commercialize. We looked to understand the problem in the world first and then build the technology we needed to solve that problem. 
So that's really what it helped us. Uh, beyond that, of course, beyond the NSF funding, I'd say probably it probably saved us a good 20%, 30% if we're really to pick those numbers. Uh, I think we would have paid a 20 to 30% premium on both of those rounds, or we would have had to raise more rounds sequentially that would have forced us to take a higher premium over the time. But that 20 to 30%, I think, was able to, to de or the RPE funding and NSF funding was able to de-risk us, not necessarily from the capital itself. I probably could come up with that metric if I did the math out about how much that physical capital saved us. But it was the physical capital coupled with the validation that provided from the government funding. That's really what it did. If you rewind yourself a couple of years, any reflections on things you wish you had known or frameworks to help other entrepreneurs think about their funding stacks? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I have a couple of things here with this process. And my good mentor, I think Mark Bernfeld actually told me a while back, he said, Nick, think about what you want to do with your life and set, understand your metrics for success of your life. And then follow that. Make sure the business focuses on that specifically about what you want to do with your life. I think that's very key. It takes a lot of grit, it takes a lot of determination. And the reason this relates to funding stacks is look, equity financing from venture capital funds is really great funding. It's very easy. It's it's very tempting in a lot of ways. And you can get a lot of funding, a lot of quick for any half decent idea. The problem with it, I think that is people who are building a, what I would call a product in the sense of it is just an idea, like this is just this concept that they're looking to sell and push out. That works really well for venture capital funding. If you're just looking to make a quick dollar and uh, sell your business in three to five years, and that's what you want to do. Venture capital is honestly probably the best approach for it. Yes, there's ways to augment that with government non-dilutive funding, but if it's your core mission in life and it's your core goal to achieve these metrics, this way to impact the world, and you're a mission-oriented entrepreneur, building the right funding stack is absolutely essential to you because you're not going to just sell the company on the quickest dime. You're not going to just pivot out of there. You have a long time ahead of you, 10 plus years. So you need to make sure you make the most of that. And so when you're early on pursuing government funding, pursuing non-dilutive grants, I think the world of university startup competitions, I think they are amazing. It can help you build not only a network and not only funding around it, but really a good ecosystem to help you scale. Starting those first, getting that off the ground, getting your first proof points, showing that the milestones uh, that you set forth, you can actually achieve, showing that inflection point, then supplementing with the venture capital funding that are strategically powerful for you. No investor on your cap table should not know anything about your business. No investor on your cap table should be dumb money. They should all be very helpful because then you're just getting more and more partners to help you scale. And that's worth way more than the capital that you're actually getting here. And supplementing that business with the capital that way as you grow and as you start achieving that magic thing called revenue, that's really where I think you see a lot of uh, value inflection at that point. So I've heard hints of what your next steps are. And I think I heard something about building a plant, which sounds like an astronomical jump. But can you talk about where you're headed now? With pleasure. Right now, we have the initial proof points to show, hey, this works. What we're now looking forward to do is show, hey, this scales and we can make money. These are two big things. The second one, I think a lot of people miss a lot of times. I think it's pretty important. But really what we're showing with that rare earth metallization facility itself is we're looking to build that one to three metric ton per month facility producing that much metal per month. That's a commercial scale metallization facility solving a huge problem for the the domestic producers of magnets and other various different electric aspects that rely on rare earth metals 
And we want to build that up to demonstrate a couple of things. One, our technology in its essence scales. And two, Phoenix Tailings is able to operate and produce metal economically and profitably. That is a big deal for us. That's really what we're focused on very close right now. And it may take a few steps to go through it. Like the way it builds up isn't just a magic linear path. It's a scaling everything, of course. There's a lot of things that do. We have to hire a lot of the best people in the world and to get to that point. But once we have that, we'll be able to show clearly, concisely, this technology scales, we can make it profitably. So we can go up the value chain to those tailing sites and process those on a much larger scale. So while we're doing all of that work to scale this metallization facility, we're doing the R&D, we're building up the pilot facilities themselves from an infrastructure planning base to be able to launch on site at a mining site, processing their tailings to produce those final metals entirely sustainably, entirely closed loop with no carbon emissions. That's our goal in the end run. And that's where really we're focused very heavily on it. Right now, we need to get there, which is where my big ask for everyone listening, we're looking for the top people in the world to join us. We mean that really heavily. We interviewed 645 candidates for three different roles. In the past, uh, we are looking for absolute best people in the world to join us at Phoenix Talents. We need the people that are looking to change the world at a deep fundamental level and will not stop. The people that can't handle the world the way it is and need to find that solution. People on every aspect of science, every aspect of business, we want them involved in some way, shape or form. We're hiring, I think, 20 people over the next two years plus. <laughs> so we're looking to bring on the absolute best people and we want them. So please reach out. That was Nick Myers and Michelle Chow from Phoenix Tailing. And we know that understanding and applying for federal funding can be complicated. So please visit Undiluted on fedscout.com to hear more founder stories and find guides, checklists, and Q&A forums to help you explore federal non-dilutive capital for your tech startup. We release new episodes each week, so please like, follow, and subscribe to make sure you get alerted when new episodes are released. Thank you for listening. Wow.